Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, in the world of media, major piece of news coming out this morning. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down as chairman of the boards of Fox and News Corp following a nearly seven-decade career and will become chairman emeritus of each company. His son, Lachlan Murdoch, will become sole chairman of News Corp and continue as executive chair and chief executive officer of Fox, the company said. Succession. Big, big, big time succession in the real world. You need perspective on a story like this. There's only one person to go to, in my opinion, and that is Brian Stelter. Uh, he is a Walter Shorenstein uh, fellow at Harvard University. Uh, most of our audience knows him as a former chief media correspondent at CNN. I also know him as a former media reporter at the New York Times, so he is the voice to go to. Brian, uh, Rupert Murdoch defines media mogul. Uh, so pretty big move here today. It is. And, and in some ways, it is surprising because Rupert Murdoch always said that he would never retire. That's what <laughs> uh, son Lachlan said about a decade ago as well. Lachlan was clearly being groomed to be the successor that's been in place for a few years today, just affirms and confirms that Lachlan is the chosen son. But all along, Lachlan had to share power with his father. And the idea was that Rupert would never retire. Well, today is the closest thing to a retirement that we're ever going to see from Rupert. Uh, his allies are calling it more of a semi-retirement. He is saying he'll be very involved, watching, reading, responding, giving feedback. But this is clearly a, a, a turning point moment for both News Corporation and Fox Corporation uh, to have Rupert moving off the board as a chairman, moving into an emeritus, emeritus role. Uh, there is obviously no coming, no turning back from this. And now this uh, cements Lachlan as the leader of both companies for better or worse. And I think there's a grand debate to be had about Lachlan's leadership, uh, the pros and cons, and, and what it means for shareholders. You know, there are a lot of businesses in which it doesn't really matter who's the CEO or the chairman. If you've got uh, somebody holding a big stake in the company, he's still the boss or she's still the boss. Um, is that the case here? Does Rupert Murdoch have to be chairman uh, and CEO to run the business, or is he still in charge of the family? Uh, he's still in charge of the family, and he still controls the trust. And, and that is the part of this that is very much like HBO's succession. Uh, you know, the, the storyline on succession is very much how it works in the in the Murdoch family. Uh, there are a bunch of votes of the trust. The trust controls both Fox and News Corp. And in the event of Rupert Murdoch's death, there will be a battle for control of both companies within the Murdoch family. Uh, people may know the, the outlines of this. Four adult children, uh, two of whom, Rupert, uh, James and Lachlan, have been warring, have been battling for years. Also two uh, women, Elizabeth and Prudence. Uh, in the event of Rupert's death, they each get one vote. 
and so there is no tiebreaker. Uh, there will be some sort of reorganization of the companies in the event of Rupert's death. But it's important to note in the memo this morning, he says he is in robust health and he's been around the Fox studio lot in Los Angeles this week, according to my sources. So I think what we're seeing today is a sort of confirmation that Lachlan is the chosen one of the father. But that does not mean uh, that there could not be any number of changes in the years to come. Brian, is there any reason to believe that with this news today that there could be any change in editorial view strategy at Fox? Right. I think that's one of the most interesting questions. And uh, the, the initial answer is no, uh, because Lachlan Murdoch uh, is as conservative and in some ways more conservative than his father. They, they have many of the same political views. They both have some distaste for Donald Trump. Rupert Murdoch, much more critical of Trump than Lachlan has been, at least uh, as, as far as we know. But both men, although uh, critical of Trump, are definitely and defiantly conservative. I don't think we're going to see the brands change direction in a dramatic way. What we might see, and this is the question mark, and what I'm really curious about is, what will Lachlan Murdoch um, maybe more free, not entirely freed of his father, but perhaps more free than he has been, uh, does he have uh, plans he'd like to put in place? Does he have business ventures or, or strategic shifts that he's not been able to pull off because of his dad? Uh, you know, we know the general direction is the same, right? Uh, toward streaming, uh, toward getting Google and Facebook to pay for News Corp's properties. You know, all of that will continue. But, you know, I will, I guess, are we going to see Lachlan emerge from his dad's shadow now, I think is an open question. How do you think uh, when we look back on this, Brian, I know you've got so much uh, history and experience with uh, the Murdoch family and the News Corporation. How do you think Rupert goes down in history? Certainly, when I think about, you know, the media moguls, Sumner Redstone, Ted Turner, you know, a couple of others, John Malone, he's right there at the top of the mountain. Uh, yes, in moving us from a broadcast to a cable and then a digital world, absolutely. There are some accomplishments that you have to give credit for. The creation of the Fox Broadcast Network. You know, we wouldn't have The Simpsons, uh, you know, and Family Guy. There's there's a lot that is so much that has Rupert Murdoch's fingerprints. Of course, that well, also includes right, Fox Brian. News. Brian. I mean, he's created an entire political movement. Doesn't it feel like that? It does. We would not have had a Donald Trump presidency without Rupert Murdoch and Fox News. Uh, the polarization of Fox News, but also the diversity of voices. You know, we could argue it in any number of directions, but the impact is very clear and spread out all around the world, including in Australia and the UK and other markets. Uh, you know, there's a satellite network. A lot of that is, is about Rupert Murdoch's legacy. Now, I would say on the business front, he had impeccable timing, selling most yep. of Fox to Disney about five years ago, uh, you know, providing more firepower for Disney in the streaming wars, but also getting out of some declining businesses. If you look at the stock for Fox Corporation in the five years since it was spun out, you know, it's down 23, 24 percent over five years. Uh, News Corporation has fared somewhat better. But if you're an investor in these companies, you are not altogether pleased by Rupert Murdoch's performance in recent years, uh, as these companies have faced headwinds of the Apples and the Disneys and the Googles, these much bigger giants that now control the media and tech landscape. And Brian, that kind of calls into question, again, a lot of folks say maybe Rupert was the smartest person in the room selling to Bob Iger when he did. What does Bob Iger and Disney do now? Because they've said, unlike Rupert, we're staying. We're going to try to evolve and, and compete in this new media world. How do you think that plays out for Bob Iger? 
Right. And to me, I think about it as a consumer. How attached am I to Disney as a consumer? How invested am I? How much do I have to spend to go to Disney World, Disneyland? How much do I have to pay for Disney Plus? And I think Disney has its hooks in consumers uh, better than any of these other media companies. Uh, that's why when I look at this landscape, it's it's, it's Disney and, of course, Netflix uh, that would be the ones that I would be wanting to bet on. That said, the challenges are enormous. Uh, he is saddled by assets like the ABC television network that are no longer deemed desirable and uh, how he's going to navigate out of that you know to me it's a very treacherous one two years ahead to me in 10 years i'd still rather be disney because they're still going to have their hooks in so many families that have to go meet mickey mouse uh, but in that short term that short term is so so murky is there a future or what is the future for cable news do you think for cable news, well, Fox News is the strongest of the pack. Uh, all of these companies are facing secular challenges. We know about the headwinds. Uh, but, you know, Fox News, for all of its faults, and I believe there are many, it has a captive and loyal audience almost like anything else <laughs> in television or in media. And I, I do see some challenges around the edges. Tucker Carlson's firing did cause a ratings drop, but most of those viewers have actually come back to Fox News. Yep. So uh, if you were betting on a cable channel out there, you'd probably be betting on Fox News. Again, for better or worse, uh, right now they're, they're getting ready for their next GOP debate. Uh, the Republican Party gave Fox the first two debates, not Newsmax, not Rumble, not some far right internet stream. Re Republican Party still went back to Fox. So that alliance is still very real and very strong and frankly, very profitable for Laughlin and Rupert. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, giving us a few minutes of your time. Brian Stelter, he's a Walter Shorenstein Fellow at Harvard University uh, and a former chief media correspondent at CNN, also a former media reporter with The New York Times, so certainly has the, the chops to give us uh, uh, his perspective. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. A little bit of uh, economic data today in, in addition to the jobless claims and, and uh, Philly Fed uh, home sales. We also had the uh, leading index uh, came in at uh, zero percent uh, 
uh, negative 0.4. Consensus was for negative uh, 0.5. So a little bit better uh, than expected there. Dana Peterson joins us, chief economist for the conference board. Dana, what did your uh, what did you learn from your uh, index that you released this morning? Well, it's still telling us that uh, the leading indicators are suggesting that there's going to be a recession at some point over the next 12 months. Um, certainly, when we look at the details, uh, the financial market indicators, as well as the expectations gauges for consumers, continue to be negative, and also jobless claims tick down a little bit. Um, but all in all, this measure has been negative for 16, 17 months, and it's continuing to tell us the same exact story. Is it? I mean, it's been telling us the same story, but the economy's pretty good shape here. How do we kind of put those two together? Sure. I think the thing is that within that measure, you don't really have services embedded and um, you don't have all the labor market indicators in there. We do have labor market indicators in the current economic conditions measure, and that has continued to say that everything's okay. And that's because we continue to see positive payroll gains and real incomes are rising year on year, especially as inflation comes off. And so that's really the current situation. But again, we're trying to look ahead. And when we look at what's going to be facing the consumer and businesses going forward, we're looking at very elevated interest rates for longer. Certainly the Fed indicated that it's not going to cut interest rates that much next year. Maybe they have one more hike this year, but then only two cuts next year. And we're also looking at a situation where consumers are going to have to pay down their debts. And those debts are going to be much more expensive going forward, including uh, having to pay for student loans. So all these things are going to coalesce into an economy that we think is going to be slower and potentially experiencing a short and shallow recession. How is the consumer looking? And I know um, Tom always points out the bifurcation, and that is, you know, definitely a thing. You know, if you're the CEO of an automaker, you're getting $25 million a year. So it, the consumer from that, that consumer looks great. But if you're one of the UAW workers, not so much. Um, we start to see a buildup in credit card debt. We start to see more and more delinquencies we're hearing um, in terms of credit card and auto loans. As you point out, student loans need to be uh, repaid again. So that debt pile that's getting more expensive is also growing, right? It is. When we look at consumer credit card debt, it's back to where we were on the trend before the pandemic. And you're absolutely right. Delinquencies are rising. They're back where we were in 2019. So all the gains have been wiped out. And when we look at charge-offs, especially by banks that are not in the top 100 ranks, uh, those charge-offs are very elevated and even above where we were back in 2019. So we're looking at a situation where the consumer is coming under pressure. Folks are spending using credit cards to finance their spending, and it certainly isn't coming into a very good picture, we think. How about the labor market here as it relates uh, to this economy? We had the initial jobless claims once again come in, you know, better than expected, uh, better than last month at uh, 201,000. It's this labor market, despite, you know, all the doom and gloom out there, if there, to the extent there is, is still resilient. Well, I think you need to look at the labor market three different ways. So, yes, you do have some companies that are still hiring. And those are mostly the companies where they need people to show up to work, such as healthcare, uh, restaurants, hotels, even public administration. And so we're definitely seeing job gains there, but those gains are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then the, on the other end of the spectrum, you do have layoffs. And those are mainly companies that did very well during the pandemic and not so much this 
now past the pandemic, certainly tech, finance, transportation, warehousing, but you still have a large group of companies that are hoarding workers. And the reason why is they don't want to have to let everybody go, especially if they think that the downturn is going to be short, it's going to be mild. Um, but we are seeing them cut back on hours. Hours are back down to where they were pre-pandemic after a surge. And certainly wage growth isn't as aggressive as it used to be. And we're seeing companies pull down job ads and there's less quitting. So there's definitely cooling in the labor market occurring. Yeah, it does seem like um, the strength is a bit de- deceptive, you know, but we but, you know, I keep thinking that and then we keep getting these amazing data points. So or much better than expected data points. Um, at what point does that turn around? Well, I mean, the data that I'm looking at seems to be mixed. Um, certainly when we look at retail sales, they were negative in terms of month-on-month games in real terms after adjusting for inflation. Um, when we look at payrolls, yes, 187 was very good, and in most years that'd be great, but we saw pretty significant downward revisions to prior months. And when you start seeing downward revisions, downward revisions to payrolls, it creates a trend and you have this downward momentum in general. So. Um, I think that, and also when we look at inflation, headline is going in the wrong direction. Hence, the Fed signaled we're not done with interest rate hikes. And certainly, there's concerns that the Fed will raise interest rates so much and that the cumulative tightening is going to weigh on the economy and cause a more disastrous situation. So I think we need to parse the data very carefully. Yes, there's some things that are surprising to the upside or slightly better, but even our own leading indicators even though it wasn't minus a half, it was still minus 0.4, That's, it's still negative. So I think we need to look closely at the data and see that yes, the US economy is slowing in line with what the Fed wants regarding its monetary policy tightening. So again, so just to be clear, Dana, are, are you guys at the conference board saying uh, maybe a, a shallow recession next year is, is possible, likely? Yeah, so we've, we've, that's, our, that's our call, yes, we do expect a recession. We keep having to push it out because consumers have been spending. But again, a lot of that's using debt. Um, but yes, we do have a recession call for the first half of next year. Again, not very long, not very deep, and we'll get out of it pretty quickly. And then we get, hopefully we get straight back to zero and straight policy as quickly as we can, exactly. right? Exactly. That's when life is good. Dana Peterson, thanks so much for joining us. Dana Peterson, Chief Economist for the Conference Board. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Barry Reholtz joins us. He's the host of Masters in Business uh, on Bloomberg Radio. He's also the chairman and chief investment officer of Reholtz Wealth Management. Uh, Barry, your Federal Reserve stayed put yesterday, but still talking tough, aren't they? Yeah, they have not been afraid to really uh, communicate what their intentions are. We, we can disagree with them and we can argue with them, but you can't say they haven't worn the street of their views and they haven't told people this is exactly what we're going to do so um they still have two cuts priced in next year and i've been asking everybody today about you know where the fed ultimately wants to be because they have a forecast for 3.9 percent at the end of 2025 and 2.9 percent at the end of 2026 it feels to me like even though higher for longer is the current mantra they want to be long-term low is that is that the right way to be? They want to be long term. 
they've said they want to be long-term high. No, no, no. They, they're forecasting 2.9% at the end of 2026. Like, why? If they achieve a soft landing and the economy's okay, why would you want rates to be 2.9%? Isn't it healthy to have a solid five? I, I, I'm sorry. Did you say 2026? I, I, my, yes. My, yes. All right. So let's let's laugh about that for a moment. And let me point out that the quarterly dot plot has been so wildly wrong for all of the past five years, just looking out four quarters, just looking out a year ahead, to think that anybody on this Federal Reserve or anywhere else has the slightest idea what the state of the economy is going to be, what inflation is going to be like, what interest rates are going to be like in 2026. It's not merely laughable. I would call it malpractice because you have to know GDP, whether or not we're in a recession, what's going on with employment, um, what's going on with inflation. These guys can't forecast a quarter ahead, three years. It's hilarious. I get that. I mean, I, well, we my question is, radio here. my question <laughs> is really just, um, you know, is the bias right now to try and get back down to, to ZERP? Like, is that where we want to be? Because over the last oh, no. 50 years, we've averaged like 4.6% on the Fed funds rate. So, um, isn't that healthy or I guess it's, you know, it depends on what, where our start is, but isn't it healthy to have uh, the real rate of return like around 5%? Um, so so Zer let's start with ZERP, um, which is a great place to begin. What is ZERP? ZERP was zero interest rate policy. Thank you. Was a, a uh, actually traces back to 9-11, but really it's a post-financial crisis emergency footing. So if the Fed is at zero, your assumption should be, hey, something is either systematically wrong, systemically wrong with the financial system, or we're in the midst of a really, really bad crisis or recession. So zero should be off the table. What we want to do is get to neutral, which is the English way of, of saying um, our uh, uh, English way of saying our start. We're, we're not encouraging inflation. We're not discouraging inflation. We're at a balance. The problem is the economy runs hot and cold. I don't mean recession-wise or bubble-wise, but some quarters are better than others, and you kind of have to allow a little bit of inflation. You don't want to cause a recession. Uh, when we when we look at CPI now, uh, a lot of this all comes back to the 2% inflation target, which, as former Fed Vice Chairman Ferguson showed, is really a made-up number that uh, goes back decades and doesn't correlate with anything. So the focus on 2%, I think, is misguided. What we want to see is stable prices and, and as close to full employment as we can get. I think the Fed sometimes gets so wrapped up in their models, they forget first principles. Price is stable, full employment. From there, what, what the actual Fed funds rate is, whether it's 4, 4.5, 5, is almost irrelevant. Hey, Barry, I know how you, you hate throwaway terms that people use all the time, like it's different this time and there's cash on the sidelines, things like that. But how about the one discussion I hear a lot of is soft landing, hard landing, no landing. I don't know. True. What the heck does that mean? I don't know. How do you think about just where the economy is heading and how to kind of describe it? I love that. I love that question. Listen, the first, first things first. Do you have a job? If you have a job, okay, so things are pretty okay. Uh, are you getting paid enough? 
are, are you seeing regular raises? Are you keeping up with the cost of living? That, that's where we all start. When we take it to the next level, we want to know what are consumers spending, how much is the broad economy um, growing, and are we investing in our future? So it's a little more complicated than just, you know, are we in a recession or are we in an expansion? One of the things that I've liked that this administration has done that we haven't seen in a couple of administrations is a little bit of industrial policy and a lot of infrastructure spending. You know, you go back to Eisenhower and the interstate highway system. That was an economic boom that we built on that lasted decades. The same thing with the Kennedy administration and and uh, NASA and space exploration. That led to amazing technologies, everything from microwaves to semiconductors. Very often the private sector can't make a commitment to invest in R&D that doesn't have a return for decades. Only Uncle Sam can do that. I'm glad to see we've sort of moved a little bit back in that direction because just think of, think about the benefits of big, bold policy initiatives um, and how they've manifested in a robust economy. So, so to me, soft landing, hard landing, are, are, is the economy expanding? Are people working? Are they, are they able to pay their bills? Are they out spending and enjoying life? If, as long as that trend continues, we're great. Occasionally, there's a recession. That's the nature of things. You just don't want it to be too severe and, and too damaging. Isn't AI um, another huge impetus for economic growth? A hundred percent. I've been playing with a, a software uh, product uh, called Perplexity, and I've been using it to uh, every time I have a, a, a new guest on Masters in Business, I use it to as a as a way to double check and make sure I didn't miss anything. And you'd be surprised how often AI is going to find stuff that my researcher and myself just Googling the history of somebody's career misses. And the fascinating thing is this product continues to get better. Every one of these AI models continues to improve. And I think what yep. we're looking at now is twice as good as it was a month from now ago, but I can't even guess where these things are going to be <laughs> a year or yep. a decade from now. They're just getting better and better. Uh, this is on the same level as the internet. Yep, this is going to be a productivity boom. Uh, uh, right. Absolutely, 100%. All right, Barry, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Barry Ritholtz, host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, uh, we had the Bank of England uh, today hold interest rates steady. Still, there's concern there, and even more so in, in the continent. Dude, so much. You had this, uh, uh, the Swiss central bank holding rates steady. We were expecting a raise there. You had the okay, ECB, like there this winter. The ECB coming out and saying, well, Stornaris has said they've reached a peak in rates, and the next move is likely a cut. Boom. So, right. yeah, let's break like it a turning down. point. Let's break it down. Jay Hatfield, he's a CEO founder and portfolio manager at Infrastructure Capital Advisors. Jay, what do you make of the economy over there in Europe, given what we're seeing from some of these central banks? Thanks, um, Paul and Matt, for having me on. <clears throat> so as, as we discussed last time I was on, you know, we're laser-focused on Europe. 
And Willie, really what gave rise to that was this huge um, global bond meltdown. And so we started to study the global monetary base and noticed the ECB had shrunk it by 500 billion and overall it's dropped by 3%, which we think is a critical indicator of both inflation and growth. And then we started digging in, and I'd recommend you sent your ECO default to the Eurozone, uh -oh. <clears throat> um, if you have a terminal, which you should, but um, to track Europe, because uh, it's more difficult from the US. <clears throat> and if you look at that data since I was on last, it's really horrific. It might melt your face, so be careful when you look <laughs> at it. <clears throat> um, so both Germany, both retail sales and industrial dropped by 0.8%, which doesn't sound like that much, but that's for one month, just July. German GDP was, uh, for the end of the second quarter, only it was down 0.6 year over year. Italy, um, industrial production was down 0.7. So it looks like particularly those two countries are in an absolute free fall. Now we'll know better, so that's why I would set your default when we get the August data to see if that validates July. But if this is happening in the US, it would be all of this would be all we were, we were talking about. Well, I mean, I'm looking at the ECFC, the economic forecast, and for the Eurozone, I don't see a recession out there in forecasts, uh, but you think there is real risk? Well, I think that's the ECB's forecast, and they have a little bit in common with our Fed and that they may not be the greatest <laughs> forecasters ever created. So we just look at the real time data, and like I said, if you know, if US retail sales are down 0.8 and industrial is down 0.8, like we would be, yep. we would say, oh my God, this is horrific. So I, I just would uh, urge everybody to look at not just that data, but also the monetary base and really look at how Italy responded to that hike that was, they were just excoriated the ECB for good reason, because they're going into a significant recession. So we think this is the key risk, but on the other hand, that could be very bullish for the U.S. because if Europe starts to go into a recession, then global rates should calm down. And that's really, I would argue, the key overhang on today's market is just we have a big global sell-off in bonds. So if Europe is going to a recession, how are you positioning for that? Well, we're, we do, um, as you know, we're always cautious in August and September and early October. So we do think, I mean, we're sort of fortunate in that we have conservative dividend type stocks, <coughs> defensive dividend stocks, preferred stocks, um, MLPs <coughs> and large cap dividends. And they've all outperformed the market during this time, which makes sense because they have lower betas and they're more defensive. And even within those portfolios, we've positioned them to be more defensive. For instance, with preferreds, we actually benefit in our main fund, PFFA, because we have fixed to floating 52%. So longer for higher is actually good for that, the income of that fund. So um, we think it's a good time to either be in those type of stocks or it's okay to be in cash. Although we're sticking for now to our 4,300 to 4,600 call on the S&P. If rates keep selling off, then we could easily get to 4,200. But we do think that this uh, global growth story declining is gonna get out there tomorrow is the uh, European PMI, and we think that'll be weak, although it is really Germany and Italy that, and, to, and the UK that are the weakest, so there are other parts of Europe that are okay. So we uh, continue to see dollar strength right now. The Bloomberg dollar index, uh, that's the way I track it, is at 1256. I saw it this morning uh, right around 1260, which is 
punchy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I walked in, Paul commented, wow, Gold's taking another chin, and that, that's part of that, that trade, obviously. Does that continue? Do we see Euro parity? Do we see Japanese yen at 150? And then do we start to see intervention? Well, if, if our scenario plays out, absolutely. So we think the U.S. is resilient because of the um, resilient auto sector and housing, which usually crack during recession. In fact, we have some new data. <clears throat> the average recession, you have a 13.4% decline in investment, but consumption is flat. Normally grows at 3.3, so it comes down. But it's really the driver of a recession is investment. So if we're right about the U.S., that we're resilient, and Europe is plunging, then that trend should continue. And that is bearish for commodities. And one reason why we think oil will cool down, because it's really not just rallied, you have to, it's rallied plus another 5% because the dollar is appreciated. So that's a headwind and would validate our 75 to $95 range on oil, which would be bullish for inflation. So, But we do think the dollar will continue if we're correct about the U.S. economy dramatically outperforming China and Europe. <clears throat> Are we gonna? If we have a U.S. government shutdown, what's your view on that? And is there any way to and a prolonged for UAW strike? I mean, both yeah, of those exactly, things. Yeah. Uh, well, we call inflationary, right? Yeah, we call the uh, refer to the government shutdown as the government vacation, <laughs> because you know if you really look at it, they furlough the employees, but they still pay them. Yeah. So it's actually a good rationale for Fitch to downgrade the U.S. because we have the most ridiculous budget process ever where you, quote, shut down the government, but uh, you don't save any money. So, and if you look, the market actually trades up. Now, I'm not sure it's going to trade up this time of year, but so we think that's irrelevant, um, good for the media to report on, but not critical for investment. Um, the UAW strike, I think, is critical. Um, full disco- disclosure, my daughter is a member of the UAW, <laughs> <coughs> so you could take this with a grain of salt. Um, she's in the Berkeley uh, division of the UAW, um, so she's covered by them. but. The um, we do think that autos like we don't really believe in persistent inflation, except for auto services. If you look at auto services, they are ridiculously high, like 19 percent on insurance, 15 percent on repair hasn't even started coming down. So if we have the strike that's just going to get extended out. And and so that may give the Fed more um, reason to to not uh, cut rates or or pause. So I would focus more on that. I don't think it's a big issue for the overall economy because to some degree, if you have less, less inventories on these sort of wildcat strikes, then you have less chance of massive layoffs because let's, we have a shortage. Let's rip up the script for a second. Oh. Uh, I mean, she's in the Berkeley uh, unit of the UAW. So it's the United Auto Workers Union. And I mean, having seen Oppenheimer recently, I know that these uh, – higher places of higher education get very involved with with unions mm-hmm. what is she's clearly not putting cars together at berkeley well, what does she I'm, do i'm very proud of her and i think it's a good backup career to move to detroit and and assemble <laughs> cars but the um the teacher the tas are members of the uaw which i find fascinating yeah they already had a successful strike so <laughs> i indirectly benefited from that because they had a, a pretty substantial pay raise i don't think they're going to do any wildcat strikes but she de- they're definitely getting emails and they're supporting their brethren and i had no I idea know. yeah yeah well, you better unionize those tas because sometimes the professors yeah but in the united auto workers surely there's a teacher's union <laughs> yeah exactly but the, the uaw is good on these strikes things i mean they know what they're doing the well the last couple of presidents of the uaw are in prison yes <laughs> so they weren't very good <laughs> they at these weren't very good things. at that right all right jay thanks so much for joining us jay hatfield 
CEO, founder, and portfolio manager, infrastructure capital management. Uh, looking at these markets, again, kind of taking a breather here, no question about it. Uh, the S&P 500 off 1.1% uh, and the NASDAQ off 1.3%. So definitely some concern out there. And on the yields, two years off 3%, 5.15% on your two-year treasury yield. That seems pretty attractive. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Had a nice M&A trade in the technology space uh, today. Cisco intends to acquire Splunk. For $157 per share in cash, representing approximately $28 billion in equity value. Uh, let's get a sense of what this deal really means in the tech space. We welcome Wu Jin Ho, Senior Hardware Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. All right, Wu, um, in this space here, first of all, just tell us what Splunk is. What do they do? Sure. Um, Splunk is a company that does infrastructure software. They provide observability or, or, or and help uh, monitor uh, the hardware and the networking components that's within uh, a, a corporate IT. Um, as more things move to the cloud, uh, companies are trying to better understand how data traffic is moving inside the cloud. So Splunk plays a very critical role. Oh, that makes sense then. Yeah. So they're like going into the cave, into the dark recesses of the internet and checking things out to make sure all the gear is good, right? Well, let's think of it this way. So Cisco, if, you think, if we use the cave uh, analogy, Cisco is the pipes in that cave, and then um, uh, Splunk is is the scope that, that goes through the pipes. Interesting. All right, so, so Splunk is, I guess, the best name they could come up with. For that. Yeah, yeah because if you think about <laughs> scopes looking in pipes, that's no. It's that's Splunking, no right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, all right, so what's Cisco's strategy here what's the kind of the takeaway uh from you in the street yeah so uh, it's fairly straightforward right uh, if, if long followers cisco uh, know this they've been trying to move to this 
hardware only model to a perpetual software model. Everyone loves recurring revenue. Uh, and, you know, if for, for Cisco, it's really tough road for, you know, given that they used to be a book and ship type of company from, from a revenue generation standpoint. Uh, they've been acquiring software companies and they've also been um, developing their own uh, software uh, for sale. And what we've seen over the past couple of years through M&A, um, that software is going to be about 25% of total sales and about 45% of product sales. Uh, and uh, Splunk is uh, going to help them augment that software component as well as a recurring revenue component. So Cisco, I mean, is a giant company, right? Splunk is, the, the deal is what, 25 billion or so? And, yep. and Cisco is a $216 billion company. Are they very acquisitive? Um, is this how they build rather than organic uh, growth? And, and do you think they have any more coming up? Yeah, so so great question. I mean, Cisco among um, all the companies that I cover is probably one of the more acquisitive companies that that, that I cover. Um, uh, however, um, they don't typically do deals of this size. They go for smaller tuck-in technology deals and hope to grow it uh, from the inside. Uh, Twenty-eight billion will probably is is the largest deal that they've ever done, uh, and um, you know, it, it's going to drain all of that excess cash that they have, but. Uh, given that they did generate about $15 billion in cash flow annually, they really should be able to uh, do more deals if they want to. But I think large deals going forward are going to be off the table for, for the time being. So how about from an evaluation perspective? Um, I'm looking at Cisco stock uh, off a little bit here today. What's the, the valuation pencil out to? Yeah, for, well, uh, you know, Splunk, uh, from a valuation perspective, it's about six times forward sales. Um, if we talk about the... Uh, fast-growing software guys. Uh, they typically run anywhere between 8 to 12 times. Uh, some of the slower growth, where Splunk can fall into, uh, are in the 5 to 6 times. So this, it, from a valuation standpoint, uh, it, it's right. It, it, it's a good valuation. But it is on, you know, Cisco tends to buy slower, uh, more mature companies. So this is high on the Cisco perspective, but uh, right right size from, from a uh, software perspective. All right, so I'm looking uh, at the comp function, Matt Miller's favorite function, COMP for Cisco. And I see, you know, over the last five years, this has had a compounded annual return of about 5% has Cisco versus, a, mm -hmm. S, you know, the S&P 500 about 10. And then the, uh, the information technology, uh, S&P 500 information technology sector index about 18 or 19 times. So Cisco really underperforming from a stock price perspective. What's the story behind that? Yeah, you know, if, if you look at it from a past couple of years, uh, I think people were uh, very concerned about uh, sustainable or sustained order activity uh, because of the macro backdrop. Look, I, if, if you look at the revenue growth, uh, it shows uh, 10 to 12 percent uh, for fiscal 2023. But if you look at fiscal 24, we're seeing that revenue growth fall off to about uh, 1 percent next year. That's actually a good thing. I think uh, heading into the print, uh, last quarter, people were thinking that uh, uh, sales would decline because of the drop-off in orders, uh, but um, the, the ability to deliver revenue growth for the year shows that you know it's not going to drop off that much. Now, now that being said, um, that's one of the reasons why uh, they're going after companies with more uh, recurring revenue, like Splunk, and uh, over the long term, it's going to help with the business model in my mind. Are these companies, um, you know? destined to be changed by AI? 
I mean, are they, are they already being, uh, uh, is there already dramatic upheaval due to the AI kind of stock market revolution? Is it hitting the ground in, in uh, corporate culture? Yeah, well, for, for let's just say Cisco and the networking guys uh, of that ilk, right? Uh, they've already been using uh, AI and automation for, for quite some time now. There are other companies that have utilized it a lot better, uh, but uh, as um, more of the hardware and software become disaggregated, you can actually a lot, uh, automate a lot of functions. Um, you know, and and uh, for for example, um, let me give you. Uh, whenever our PCs go down, uh, the, the network would be able to know automatically uh, where which PC it's down and, and and how to fix it right away, right? And and that could save a lot of manpower hours. Um, there's a lot of coding that's involved. So the whole space is destined to go AI. The, the question is, is that uh, what does that mean for from from a, a, a network management operation standpoint? And um, at the end of the day, it's all about saving costs on AI, right? Yeah. Uh, out of your you know, hardware coverage, your, your networking coverage, what are, what are the names you're most uh, excited about when you, when, you, when you talk to investors? Where's kind of the, the most interest? Well, the, the most interest is uh, right now is, is Dell and, and HPE, quite, quite frankly. Uh, and, and the other uh, name is Arista. So those are the three names that most people are interested on. Uh, Arista uh, is, is mainly on uh, cloud AI, data center infrastructure. And um, that's, uh, that's where they see phenomenal growth. But uh, the other area is uh, the revival of uh, Dell and how AI uh, servers can potentially uh, drive a faster revenue growth profile versus the three to 4% that they usually have uh, to maybe another point or two in growth and better margins going forward. So I guess the, the question is within the tech stack, is it, what's the big theme that's, that's kind of driving your, your, your space these days? Yeah, look, it's, it's it's like everybody else in tech. It's it's AI, 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 <laughs> right? And and um, I, I think I mentioned it to you once before uh, on other shows. Uh, AI has turned into a drinking game in, in on conference calls. <laughs> so um, no, it it really is. Uh, if if you don't have an AI growth story uh, as part of um, uh, the long term thesis, uh, you're really not going to see the valuation um, expand. All right, Wooj, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate uh, getting a few minutes of your time. Wu Jin Ho, Senior Hardware Analyst, Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, via Zoom from the Bloomberg Intelligence Global HQ in Princeton, New Jersey. Uh, I saw John Butler in the background, Geetha Ranganathan in the background there. So good, good stuff. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Big news in the world of media. I mean, really big news. When you think about media moguls, there's a bunch of them. Sumner Redstone, John Malone. I mean, you think about Ted Turner, but certainly... At the absolute top of that list, you got to put Rupert Murdoch in. It was announced by the company that today that he was stepping down uh, from his role as chairman at Fox and, and uh, News Corporations. We want to get a, some perspective on that. And no, nobody better than Laura Martin. She's a senior media analyst uh, at Needham. She's covered this industry, this company, and this man for decades. So, Laura, thanks for joining us here. Um, you know, I guess it's not unexpected. I mean, given that he's 92 years of old, uh, 92 years of age, but still a big day in the world of media and for News Corp. 
I agree with you 100%. I think you and I both, Paul, thought that Sumner Redstone would outlive this guy, but it just wasn't <laughs> true in the end. Right. It was like Paramount versus Fox. I guess Fox won. But yeah, I think I think Wall Street's been expecting this guy to step down for the last decade, and here he is finally stepping down at 92. It's unclear how 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 heavy a hand he's had in the you know in the business of the company for the last four years. So I don't know how much will actually change with him stepping down, but certainly the last of an era. I think John Malone's the only one left that's sort of still yeah. on the board of Warner Brothers of that old guard. Um, I don't know if that's a positive or a negative, but it's certainly about time for changing of the guard. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Rupert Murdoch and the, and the original news, news corporation now split into Fox and, and others. Um certainly had a huge impact in Australia initially, where he initially started the company, and then in uh, Europe, particularly in the UK, uh, and then ultimately here in the United States. Talk to us about kind of the legacy you think Rupert Murdoch has in the world of kind of global media. You know, I think he was, remember, he invented that fourth network. Everybody said a fourth network wouldn't yep. work at Fox. And so he created a fourth network, proved it could be done, the help of Barry Diller and Michael Eisner. Um, and and I think he proved to the world that the, you know, remember, he only had primetime programming. He didn't have all full day right. programming. And primetime was one hour less. He really innovated Fox News. Huge innovation when you and I were covering these companies, Paul, together. You know, remember he paid, everyone thought he was crazy. Yep. He paid a dollar a month to get Fox News carried on Comcast because they didn't need another news program. They had CNN. And he built that. I think he paid him for five years. And it became by buying that shelf space on cable television, which at the time was sort of shelf capacity constrained before they did their new build outs for modems. You know, he basically made Fox News. He put them on the shelf and now it became probably the number one news for the last decade it's become the number one news ratings channel so thank good the thank goodness the linear bundle has fox news but rupert paid to get it on and so really he innovated a lot in media he really sort of changed how we see media today was in large part influenced by rupert murdoch's decisions early on in the ecosystem yeah absolutely and then about five years ago um laura he he sold the majority of his company to um you know to walt disney company and i i guess in hindsight that's a pretty smart move how do you think that deal is going to be remembered yeah good question i mean he basically doubled down on the linear tv ecosystem and he sold all of his streaming rights and all of his yep. um and all of his and he gave it to the walt disney company you know 70 billion is what he sold it for you know, it's unclear. Maybe that deal looks expensive today, but is that Disney mismanaging it or is that really the value? Um, I do think it's worth more. Those assets are worth more in the hands of the Walt Disney Company than they would have been in the hands of Fox alone. I think that to me is clear. But the linear TV ecosystem is maybe more troubled than yes. I think he knew even at the time. I, I think it will go down in history that Time Warner sold out at the peak, yep. right? That Lucas sold out at the peak and that's the brilliant move. I think it's a little less clear yet um, on Fox whether he sold out at the right price too early or too late. Do you think there might be any change in strategy at the at the you know Fox or in any of the companies now that he's stepped down officially as uh, chairman? Do you think there'll be any change in strategy there? I do. I think youngsters are a little more inclusive, a little less pointy. I think some of this Fox News controversy is much more likely to come back to my opinion, back to moderate with uh, youngsters running it um, without Rupert's sort of sharp edge. Because I think, you know, Rupert at 92 probably had a different view of 
you know, entertainment versus yep. news. I think Rupert always thought he was making entertainment, not news. And I think Fox News has been criticized for that. I wouldn't be surprised to see the son who's younger bring it back more towards news and less about um, entertainment. Uh, Laura, I know you were, uh, you know, at the Walt Disney had an investor day uh, a couple of days earlier this week here. Um, what were your takeaways there? Because one could argue Bob Iger, boy, this is as tough, tough as it's ever been to run a media company. You know, I agree. I think the skill that people underestimate that Bob Iger has, like he said twice, I'm going to quiet the noise. I think that is Bob Iger's core value skill, yep. which is he put back the organization. So content is first. He's going to quiet the noise with DeSantis. He's going to quiet the noise with regulators and all the local communities. He has 170,000 park employees. Yep. He's going to quiet the noise and he says, we're going back. Our job is to entertain, not to be issues focused. So that's an easier task and it's safer for the Walt Disney Company. So I think he's going to go back and create sort of this cone of silence that lets creative people do creative things. And I think the reason that Disney has been so, the Disney content has been so poorly received at box office is because of all the noise. And he's going to go back and say, look, our job is to entertain. Let's keep our eye on the ball and let's make great stories that have nothing to do with the issues surrounding us in the real world. And I think that's good for content creation. How do you think, uh, was there any, I guess, to what extent did they frame the whole move towards streaming? I know it was, this was an investor uh, event focused on the theme parks, but obviously the big issue for Disney and for all the media companies is how they're going to effectively evolve into streamers. What's, what's the current thinking at Disney? So, Paul, it was so interesting. I mean, and that was one, if you've been in the audience with me, that was one of the big silences. They did not mention streaming. They did have the ESPN CEO on stage, you know, and that yep. has to do with streaming because he's eventually going to launch a core ESPN app. But totally unclear on timing. The things he was saying he wants to integrate into this app sound to me like they're going to take three years to execute, which just doesn't even mean it's in an investment time frame. So really a lot of silence around the strikes, around the streaming business, around the linear TV economics, which was super top of mind because of the charter resol yep. deal resolution. Really, real silences on that. The main focus was they're going to double CapEx to $60 billion over the next 10 years, and they're going to sink it into parks and cruise ships and Disney vacation villages, and they're going to try some management contracts out here in Palm Springs near me. So that was really, I would say, three hours of the total, five-hour day, and then there was an hour of Q&A and an hour of you know ESPN, the core app launch, and what it's going to entail. But they didn't talk pricing, and they didn't talk timing. And that was the only time they touched streaming at all. Interesting. What's the feeling that, from, uh, I get your opinion about this CapEx and the focus on the parks and the, and the cruises. Is that a good strategy in your opinion? You know, I think the most interesting thing to me, Paul, I think you were in the room when five years ago, I said this big, and in 2018, when they said big shift to streaming and the stock yep. ran way up. And it was like streaming is our growth driver. And I felt exactly at that moment again but with theme parks. And so theme parks, as you know, Paul, have much more capital intensity. So whatever, if this is gonna be their growth driver, the valuation multiple of Disney should come down compared to when we thought growth was gonna be driven by streaming, which is much more capital light in theory. Yep, and I know you focus a lot on return on invested capital, but I, it seems like Disney gets the best out of that, you know, uh, theme park CapEx relative to anybody else out there. 
They do. Their returns are absolutely fabulous compared to other people and compared to other people, but compared to the virtual world, yep. real life assets, they have regulatory risk, they have COVID disease risk, they have shutdown risk. You've got parks in Shanghai and Hong Kong. Yep. So a decent question is, look, the Chinese government is using Apple as a pawn because we're U.S. is trying to kick out TikTok. They're like, well, we're not going to let employees of the government use Apple phones. At what point do they suddenly use yep. Disney in Shanghai? Disney is a pawn, too. Right. Yep. So there's risk in real assets that don't exist in the global yep. virtual world, because if they kick you out, it's OK. You can go make <laughs> money in France or Argentina. Right. All right, Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the absolute go-to voice when we want to talk about the big media uh, stories of the day and Rupert Murdoch uh, stepping down as chairman at, at News Corporation and Fox, certainly one of those. Laura Martin, she is a senior media analyst at Needham & Company. She's based out in L.A., so certainly uh, feet on the ground. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.